failure, 100% failure. I think every proper learning moment I had as a leader was because I screwed something up, something fell flat on its face, a huge misstep, faux pas, did something wrong. That's what undoubtedly draws together all the big learning moments of, of of my career. Because you still, as a leader of a business, a leader of a brand, need to project confidence, stability, reassurance. You know, the last thing we want from one of our leaders is, is you know, is to wander into work each day and see them spinning out and panicking at every problem that, that is presented to themselves. I think what I, I learned was I wanted to project a real version of myself. It didn't necessarily need to be everything because no one needed to see um, the moments that I was, you know, really worried. How do you show up at work, be authentic, but still create a level of calm, confidence, a safe environment for people to feel that everything's going to be okay, that there is hope, that there is that, that there is stability, that there is continuity. Those are the building blocks with which people can then have confidence to fail themselves. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. As many of you know, before I threw myself feet first into the wonderful world of coaching, speaking, writing, and of course, podcasting, I applied my trade as a senior leader in global multi-channel retailers, Mothercare and Selfridges Group. Along the way, I came across the amazing work of the leading UK retail charity, the Retail Trust. To put into perspective the timelines here, 1832, the year in which the Retail Trust was founded, was also the year when Charles Darwin and the crew of HMS Beagle arrived in South America for the first time. From 1832 onwards, the Retail Trust has been caring for and protecting the lives of people working in retail. They believe The health of retail colleagues is the foundation they need to flourish in both work and life, creating a more sustainable and successful future for the retail sector. And in recent years, the retail industry has been extremely hard hit by economic turbulence. Their services have never been more necessary. Last year, over 270,000 retail colleagues reached out for help. The Retail Trust took 14,000 helpline calls, that's one every 37 minutes, provided over £400,000 in financial aid and delivered over 10,000 counselling sessions. I was honoured to be a guest speaker at the recent Retail Trust Together Fest employee wellbeing event, and today I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Chris Brooke-Carter, the CEO of the Retail Trust here on The Unlock Moment. Chris has been a passionate supporter, advocate and champion of UK retail across his entire career. Prior to joining the Retail Trust, Chris was the Managing Director and Senior Vice President of Retail Week, 
the most influential media brand in UK retail and the World Retail Congress, the single biggest gathering of global retail's leadership each year. Chris led these brands for 10 years, transforming the business from a weekly print title into a digital-first information and global events brand that continues to sit at the heart of global retail by delivering on its mission to inform, connect and inspire the leaders that continue to colour this great sector. I'm looking forward to hearing about Chris's life lessons in retail and the unlock moments that helped him to figure out the path ahead. Chris Brooke Carter, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Gary, thank you so much. Just uh, an absolute delight to be here. And thank you so much for um, taking time to speak to me. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. So Chris, you've been at the forefront of thinking in UK retail for years, and you're obviously deeply passionate about helping to look after the millions of colleagues who work in the sector. Where do we need to start in your journey to understand the person you are today? I think probably uh, back at the start of my working life, I think um, I graduated from university and then took a postgraduate diploma in journalism uh, in 1997 um, and really stumbled into the world of uh, business journalism and, and connecting industry through information uh, off the back of a couple of weeks work experience uh, at a publisher that specialized in the wine and spirits industry. I spent two fabulous years there, traveling the world, tasting every fine wine and spirit under the sun. But, but more importantly, I think got a, became very passionate about how information could connect businesses uh, and the means with which better informed executives could make better decisions on behalf of their organizations and indeed the industry in general. And what was it that that you thought was was your future at that time? Did you have a view of a sort of long term plan? Probably not. No. Um, I don't, and in fact, that's probably been a truism of my career, not really knowing where the next opportunity was going to come. I, I just always just wanted to enjoy what I did, be passionate about the brands that I worked for, passionate about what I was doing. And as long as I sustained those passions, felt that I was learning, moving forward, um, I wasn't all necessarily seeking the next thing or had a grand plan in, in front of me. I'm very lucky that opportunity at the right time always presented itself. And if the next role sort of I thought would be interesting, develop me as a, as a human being, then I, I, I leapt on it. And how did you find yourself in the wonderful world of retail? So I, 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 again, really lucky after a couple of years of working in the wine and spirits industry, covering that was about, yeah, 1999, 2000, just as the first dot-com boom uh, happened. And I got approached by a private equity company to help them set up and run an information, a digital information business for the FMCG sector. And of course, part of that, um, as because it's such an important route to market for those brands, was the retail industry. And so I did ended up doing that for for ten years, uh, learning how information could be provided digitally. How do you build a brand online when no one else really was doing that kind of work in in the publishing industry? And so I I, I got a very interesting ten years, almost a decade's worth of experience. Uh, ahead of a number of the big publishing companies that didn't really embrace online information, um, digital channels. They didn't, hadn't worked out how to monetize 
their brands online, still very reliant on print advertising and, and, the, and print mechanisms. And Retail Week came knocking in about 2010, 2011, interested in um, taking that brand from the heritage business that it had been a very successful one in, in print and, and exploring how they might take those brands online uh, and leverage all the opportunities that, that online information had. So I, I think I joined the business in uh, late 2011. And it's interesting, your personal journey as an emerging leader was almost the precursor to some of the sort of transformation challenges that the retail sector has been grappling with over the last kind of decade in that shift from physical to online and changing customers and changing channels. All of that dynamic is something that you'd been you've been handling for a while in your own personal growth journey. Yeah, I was really lucky a, a, a little bit in that first 10 years, a little bit like the pure plays at the time. I, you know, I joined um, that digital business at about the same time that Amazon launched uh, a few years before eBay um, was a thing. Uh, there were obviously a whole host of failures at the time, like Boo.com. Your industry is being disrupted to such a large extent by these new technologies whilst also managing really important legacy income streams that were declining, but declining very slowly. And you couldn't just turn them off. And how do you therefore almost run two business models at, at once? So yes, absolutely. The challenges that we faced in Transforming Retail Week over that 10-year period, from being a print magazine with a handful of smallish events into a, a community that was connected through digital channels and in-person events, a sort of very multi-channel brand, were, were incredibly similar to the ones that retailers themselves were facing. So I was always very empathetic to the leaders that we were talking to and, and interviewing of how difficult that is to almost cannibalize old revenue streams, but not so fast that you end up uh, you know, turning off important cash cows like the stores that they had. That's really interesting. And when you think of this idea of an unlock moment or unlock moments of remarkable clarity. Do you think back on 10, 20 years later and you remember where you were when that was happening? What, what comes to mind for you as the real sort of moments that, that you knew something you didn't know before, you learned something you didn't, you didn't have before? Failure, 100% failure. I, I think every proper learning moment I had as a leader was because I screwed something up, something fell flat on its face. A, you know, a huge misstep, faux pas, did something wrong. That, that, that's what undoubtedly draws together all the big learning moments of, of, my, of my career. I think what I've hopefully do very well now is that I'm, I'm really attuned to how brands and, and brand, particularly information brands, communication brands, brands that are trying to engage emotionally with their sector, how you do that. But that, that you know, that, that came through episodes in my career where I've tried things and they just haven't worked. In particular, I think in the live, live event space where we launched a number of events over the time that I was at, at Retail Week, some of them with some significant investment and just hadn't really understood how to launch something new into the market, connect with an audience, make sure it resonated. Do you really understand the needs of the individuals that you're selling to? And you know, I can remember being in, in exhibition halls with a handful of visitors, it felt like at the time, huge, empty places. They're vacuous. They're so uncomfortable when they're empty because we screwed things up, didn't get them right. 
But those, you know, on reflection were the moments where you do take so much learning as opposed to successes, which quite frankly, more often than not, are not necessarily down to your own brilliance. They're just that you happen to be, you know, working with the market wins at the time. So I think those were the, at a, at a sort of professional level, those were the moments. At a, at a more personal level in terms of who I am as a leader, as a person in industry and in business, I, I think... I think, again, it came down to failure, but probably the failure of my resilience. Um, as a young professional, I felt pretty bulletproof. I was really good at what I did as a journalist, but never really put under a huge amount of pressure. And I can remember being in a room at a leadership development initiative that my business was running, when, just when I'd been promoted, actually, from editor-in-chief to managing director, my first really large role, uh, general management role. Um, and they put us through two or three days worth of quite trying um, tests. And the results of the psychometric testing suggested that I didn't have great resilience, that I was quite prone to anxiety, and that that had the um, potential to make me unwell. Um, and at the time, I completely refuted the results. I just uh, assumed there must be a statistical error, that I'd filled something out wrong. But over the course of the next 18 months, as the sort of seismic jump between being a specialist uh, as an editor that I'd done for so long into being a general manager with all of the extra burden and responsibility that that entails and all the unknowns and the things that you don't do, you're doing that you're not trained properly in, um, it came quite apparent that I was susceptible, particularly at that period, to stress, anxiety, and it affected my health. And indeed, I did end up becoming quite unwell. And that 18-month period, I think, is as formative in my own views on the importance of leadership on the health of the people around you as any in my career. And I became very interested in the role of leadership in creating safe psychological spaces, creating cultures where people could thrive, do their best work without the negative impact of those sorts of levels of stress and anxiety. The moments you describe, very humbling moments, you know, standing in a vacuous exhibition hall with a handful of people going, we didn't get this right, or recognising for yourself maybe this thing that this psychometric assessment says about me might have some foundation. Those, those, are, those are moments of kind of acceptance that not only has it failed or, or, or is, there's, a, there's a thing to face into here, but it's for you to face into it. And a, yes, an acceptance of your fallibility, I think, actually, which for someone who hadn't really failed up to that point, those two points, and they were quite close together and obviously, you know, obviously re reasonably interlinked, I think, was really difficult, really difficult to realise that you weren't as good as you thought you were both at a professional level, but also, you know, in terms of the sort of strong man, you know, I can handle pressure, I'm a great leader sort of view of yourself, really difficult things to get your head round and to hide from people who were still looking to you for support, the, the, you know, the hundred or so people that were working for Retail Week at the time to come into work and present a strong, confident, 
face every single day was really difficult. And at the same time, actually, I started going through some difficulties at home as well, which unfortunately resulted in my wife and I separating. It was an incredibly difficult time, incredibly difficult time. And um, as I say, I think it's as formative a period as, as, as I can think of. And whilst I would never want to go through it again, I look back at that and realize that it's that 18 months, I think, that gave me such a sense of purpose that what I'm doing now is the right thing and I'm incredibly passionate about. And, and it's really interesting that in many of the conversations that I'm having now with leaders around purpose-driven leadership, but also this sort of human, humble, vulnerable model of leadership that, that is so much more powerful in engaging people in an honest way. And I've had many people come on the podcast who are experienced leaders or coaches who, who talk about the power of that. At the moment that you do it for the first time, everybody has that kind of experience of it's the first time they feel a bit mortal. It's the first time they feel, you know, it's, it's potentially okay to be vulnerable at work. But so many of us, the people that we look up to and inspired us through our early career, we looked at them as infallible. We looked at them as, you know, in many ways, perfect. And when we had to sort of copy them, and of course, they weren't, you know, and, and they were also human and vulnerable. But, but you can kind of kid yourself that, that there's this sort of bar to hit as a leader. And, and there's a moment of realizing that that's, that's not how it's going to be. Do you, do you remember the, a, a moment, you know, in, in, of, of feeling sort of mortal and, and going, wow, okay, I have to face into the fact that what this test is saying about me might actually be true? What was the kind of dawning realization point for you there? I think it's a real, I mean, it's such an interesting topic, isn't it? But because you still, as a leader of a business, a leader of a brand, need to project confidence, stability, reassurance. You know, the last thing we want from one of our leaders is, is you know, is to wander into work each day and see them spinning out and panicking at every problem that, that is presented to themselves. And so I think this idea of authenticity is a really interesting one. And I think what I, I learned was I wanted to project a real version of myself, but didn't necessarily need to be everything because no one needed to see um, the moments that I was, you know, really worrying or, or, you know, about how we were performing, how we might have been trading because what they wanted to, you know, what they wanted at the time was confidence that we could, we could get, we could get through this. So I, I find it a, a, a fascinating topic, and it's obviously something you you know you continue to work on. How do you how do you show up at work, be authentic, but still create a level of calm, confidence, uh, a safe environment for people to feel that everything's going to be okay, that there is hope, that there is that, that there is stability, that there is continuity, um, because those are the things that those are the building blocks with which people can then have confidence to fail themselves. I think. I went to talk by Simon Sinek very recently, and he had a really nice phrase, which was, um, you know, a vulnerable and authentic leader who is also professional in the workplace and doesn't drop their emotion on, on their colleagues and, and cause people to lose confidence and hope, all those things. And he said, it's about having emotional professionalism. And I really liked that way of positioning it, that it's not about uh, divorcing yourself from your emotion but it's about knowing that there's still a way to be in the workplace when you're the leader and people are looking to you for 
certainty and clarity and direction and all those all those good things. And I thought that was it was just a really nice framing of it. Really nice. I, you know, I wonder what you, you can dissect what people mean by vulnerability, can't you? I, I, and I think it's probably important as leaders that we we do that. For me, vulnerability at work is being comfortable acknowledging that most of the good work that's being done at the trust has got absolutely nothing to do with me. Being comfortable, you know, really authentically giving praise and patting other people on the back for the good work that that I'm able to then stand up on stage, go to our board meetings and present as successes, making sure. Uh, I think those are the bits of vulnerable. That's what I think it means to be vulnerable. Accepting that the failures are your fault and the successes are other people's. That's that's what I think that really great vulnerability looks like as a leader um, at, at work. But that that isn't, and that's not easy. It's, I think we all find giving praise actually quite uncomfortable, and some people find receiving praise quite uncomfortable. But I think it's incredibly important to do to do that. And for me, that's what vulnerability means, as opposed to necessarily. necessarily uh, you know, running around the office with your arms in the air, shouting everything's on fire. <laughs> I agree. Um, I joined the retail sector 10 years ago and at a really at a really pivotal time, which at the time I didn't really appreciate what a pivotal moment it was. But in 2013, it was for most of UK retail, you know, from 2000 to 2013, give or take, was a pretty stable time and many specialist retailers like Mothercare that I worked for had come off being pretty profitable, pretty successful. And you were starting to see some of the more exposed retailers, Mothercare being one because its customer was young and debt-ridden and facing into new costs that they were, that were unexpected because they were having a baby and had to buy all of the kit. You know, they were always going to be a little bit more vulnerable than, than some other retailers to kind of retail headwinds. And through the course of the next decade, there was a kind of cascading challenge through the retail sector from, from some specialist retailers into department store retailers and then into fashion retailers and then into pure plays and even into luxury. And that's before we got to COVID. And for leaders, what's been really interesting, I think, is that it's the decade that changed from the best retailers came with a playbook. And that playbook broadly was a successful playbook that, that if you knew how to be a brilliant operator of retailer and you were trained at one of the great retail brands, you could pretty well apply that to lots of different sectors. And, and now in the last decade, you've had some brilliant retailers who've applied that playbook. It doesn't work anymore because customers don't respond in the way they used to. The dynamics of the whole sector are very, very different. Um, what 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 do you see as as kind of the le- the lessons learned for retail leaders in this decade of such massive turbulence and uncertainty in the sector? I guess um, sort of at an industry and a sort of business level, I think we've all got used to the idea that change is just the norm norm now. And you speak to some older uh, retailers, and certainly the retail industry has always been good at managing. Change, but I, I don't think it's it's it was ever on the scale of the pace that it is it is now. And and so when they talk about the fact that you know, retailers always faced into change, well, actually, to your point, it hasn't really. The, the playbook was was pretty static. And and if you executed well and and you were entrepreneurial, then then their success was you know was there to, to be taken. I think you know being a brilliant change leader now is really really important. 
And that requires people to, to create a very strong sense of where an organization is going, what it stands for, so that you can you build a level of trust to take a team on, on a constant change process because it's exhausting. Change is really tiring for any organization. So when you're doing it continually, the culture becomes so much more important and vision becomes more important. So I think we've seen a real shift in the types of people who have become successful at leading retail businesses away from brilliant traders, acquirers, deal makers, and operators into those people that can create brilliant cultures, can create an exciting vision for for you know tens of thousands of people to get behind and move in one direction towards. Um, and so I think there's been a big shift in the type of person that retail organizations need at the top of their of their businesses. I think the other the other side to that is that people have become more and more important. Retail in the past was an incredibly top-down industry where you could bark orders at people, get a certain set of KPIs done, and hopefully the, the cash would flow uh, you know, out the other, other end. Now, because of the complexity of the challenges that the sector is facing and the complexity of, the, of, of these businesses, decision-making, responsibility, accountability has to be pushed far further down an organization. So you are needing to trust your people far more. And that's why that, that commonality of vision and, and direction is so important to set. But then you've got to create leaders. And I think those, those for me, are the big, big shifts. People and the quality of people in the organization has become more and more important because you're expecting so much more of them. So I think that what that's talking to is a, is a shift in the leadership model that people use to lead their people from a, a, boss, a boss style or, a, as you say, a sort of barking orders style to something that's much more engaging, much more delegated, much more coach style. And what I'm finding, you know, working with leaders is that some people, they might be great leaders of the former type but they might not be effective leaders in, in the style that's going to engage the new sort of Gen Z workforce and, and, and all of that. So do you think that there is a sort of generation shift now in the kind of leaders that retailers need to be bringing through to the top table? A hundred percent. I think, well, you know, if I look back over the last 15 years or so, um, having been so closely involved with the C-suite of the sector over that time, the as well as the operational shift within the organizations, the, the personality shifts around the table of the, um, you know, when we get the C-suite together now at the trust, the, the, the personality shifts, the types of people that are around the table now, significantly different to the types of people and the types of leaders, brilliant as they were back in 2010, 2011, 2012, those early days, brilliant as, as, as they were, they're, they're undoubtedly a different DNA, a different type of leader, um, more inclusive, maybe uh, less alpha, more willing to listen, I, I, I think. And, and in some ways, I, you know, more inspiring. Their ability to tell a story and create a sense of excitement about what they are trying to achieve with their brands is, is significantly different to where we were back in, in the early 2000s, I think. And that, that's, a, that's a, great, a great thing. And, it, and it's why I still love being around this sector, because I do think it creates 
brilliant leaders of their time, whatever the, the needs the needs are. And I think on top of that, then you've got a massive economic headwinds, you know, over the over the course of the last ten years, cost inflation, you know, wage cost inflation, rent rises, uh, increased competition from you know online pure plays and and others, massive discounting in the market. So again, back to that. In the old days, there was a retail playbook that was able to be successful. And no surprise that when you looked at the Sunday Times wealthiest hundred people in the country, very many of them were retailers because the nature of the business was that if you were really good as a trader of, of building those kinds of businesses, you could be super successful. Not, not so much today. And, and, and there are lots of great businesses who, would, who have got an amazing vision and great product and great execution and great service. And yet still, it, it can't make money or it can't make as much money as it, as it used to do. And, and I think that that's something that outside the sector is not necessarily fully appreciated. And people will look back and say, well, 20 years ago, there were just more people in the store and they were, you know, there was just a higher level of service and people were brilliantly trained. And they're not appreciating that the, the ability of retailers to create that environment, you know, a shop on every corner with, with lots of staff in that just economically that, that doesn't work anymore. And, and that was very striking to me as a strategy director in the sector that, you know, how tight retailers had to operate to, to make any money at all. And that, that really shifted over that sort of decade into the early 2010s, I would say. Yes, 100%. And the, the sort of structural headwinds that face the sector now are still, uh, still significant. And I, I think working out exactly how to create profitable multi-channel brands is still very difficult. You're almost running two cost bases. Uh, the, the internet, uh, for all the good it's done, has, has created enormous amounts of competition, tri- uh, price transparency, choice for consumers who are not remotely brand loyal anymore. And whilst retailers used to pour money into to opening stores and, and rate the race for space and all those sorts of things now, the same, to, to maintain a brand's relevance online is incredibly expensive. You know, you are pouring good money after bad uh, into Google AdWords, Google Advertising, uh, the price of which continue to, to go up. So creating margin now for any organization, particularly one that's operating down multiple channels, is very difficult. And of course, consequence of that for many retailers have failed over the la- course of the last 10 years. Many, many retailers have massively downsized their store estate. And of course, that's where most of the people are employed. And I'm, I'm very conscious, of course, with Mothercare that that's, that's where Mothercare was in, in between 2013 and 2018. The Mothercare store estate reduced from 250 odd stores to 80. And then a year later, the UK business went into administration and completely closed. So in that business, three and a half to 4,000 roles last. And of course, that's where the retail trust is so important, you know, looking after colleagues, often colleagues who have spent 20, 30, 40 plus years in, in the industry. So tell me more about the retail trust, the work it does, and why it's so important that, that it's here. My pleasure. It's, it is the most extraordinary organization. It has been around for almost 200 years. Um, and that's meant for, for, for two centuries, the sector and the people within this sector have had somewhere to turn to in their, in their time, of, uh, time of need. We essentially operate down three channels. We do three things. We look after uh, young uh, kids from disadvantaged background who are getting their first foot on the ladder of 
a career in retail, whether it's a traineeship or an apprenticeship, who are struggling to afford digital the digital tools to complete those courses. And, and so we address digital poverty among that, that group. Uh, the other end of the age spectrum, we run around about 500 flats and houses up and down the country where we offer high quality retirement and residential care services to the over 55s of, of former retail workers who might have either fallen on hard times or have got early onset of some degenerative diseases and need some extra care and support um, within a, a safe community. And then in the middle is where we do the bulk of our, our work, where we, we help, as you, as you said, um, over a quarter of a million people last year, um, where we're looking after the financial and mental health of those people actually engaged in the trade, uh, in, in the retail trade at the moment, uh, through a range of services that engage both leadership through data and insight services so they can pr- provide and improve better cultures around health, uh, all the way through to those uh, services at the disposal of the individual from preventative content and masterclasses and uh, mental health training through to crisis services like counselling, financial aid or uh, critical incident response units as well. And I think one of the most powerful things that I've seen you do when I've been invited to one of the Retail Trust uh, events, one of the Retail Trust dinners, where you've got you know the, the great and the good of UK retail sitting in a closed room and you can lock the door. And, and extract their, their hard-earned money for, to, to support the charity. You bring people who've been impacted by Retail Trust and the work that it's done, you know, to talk to them and say this, this is the impact that it's had. Is there a story that comes to mind for somebody who, who has, has benefited from the work of the Retail Trust that helps to bring this to life? Uh, um, yes, I mean, it, it, it's not often that we actually get to hear from those people we help because the, the services we provide are importantly confidential. Uh, and and often, obviously, quite often, the more sort of heart wrenching stories are the ones that people are least wanting to share. But you know, I, I was speaking to an HR director a couple of months ago of a, of a business where we've really gone all in at. We are helping them build strategy, build their well being policies. We're providing data and dashboards so that they can measure the impact of the work that we're doing there and identify areas that that we can action to improve workplace culture. We've trained their line management to create an environment where having conversations around mental health are just far more easier. And then actually obviously encouraging individuals to reach out and and use the services, whether it's the preventive ones or the or the more crisis management services. And uh, we were reviewing the first sort of six months of this relaunch. And um, just at the end, she, she just said, look, Chris, I think you should know this, but we are absolutely clear that in the last six months, the trust has saved two lives within our business. The culture that we now have where open conversations around health, where line managers feel equipped to have really good conversations around health, we know has stopped two people taking their lives. You know, of all, all the things that we're trying to do, which is actually to systemically move on the retail industry at a very top level, you realize that it, it does come down to individuals and it does come down to the impact on individual, real lives, real families. And it's, it's very powerful and very moving when you, when you do get a few opportunities to really hear how we've, how we've helped. That's an incredible story. And thank you for, thank you for sharing that. Demand for retail trust services has, has massively increased in the last few years with all of this economic turbulence. What do you think the year ahead holds for UK retail and, and, and the impact on, on the trust? 
we are excited, I think, to play a bigger and bigger role in, in the way that the, the sector identifies itself and, and, and manages it, its people. I think what's extraordinary about this, this organization, this charity, is that there are moments in time across its almost 200 years of existence where it has not just had an impact on individualized, but it's genuinely shifted the way that the whole of the UK thinks about work, life, the, the, the sort of social contract between industry and, and those people creating the value who, who are working in it. Um, whether it was the fact that back in 1832, it was one of the very first efforts by a sector to come together to create a pot of money so that individuals could access healthcare. Or in the 1860s, the, the president and the trustees of this charity were campaigning and, 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 in, and rolling out across their businesses time off over the weekend all the way through to the 1890s, where the big challenge that in uh, you know that the UK faced was that there was no welfare system, there were no pensions, and therefore this sector was one of the first to start building industry-specific housing for retired retail workers. So it has played this role of not just moving the dial in retail, but by moving the dial in retail, because it's such an integral industry within the UK, it's actually shifted the whole way that the UK thinks about work life. And I think that was my ambition when I when I started here was to go, look, I, I, I want us to do that again. I think now is the time for us to do that again. There is another opportunity here. We are uh, facing a situation where the health services, for one reason or another, are failing individuals, uh, particularly around mental health and, and even worse, particularly around the mental health of, of children, uh, where it is incredibly difficult to get the right support or, uh, around you know, the, the mental health challenges for, for people and for families. Industry has not just a moral responsibility to, to play a role in solving that crisis because you're looking after the people that are ultimately creating value for you. But actually, there is a very, very clear linear link between a happy, healthy workforce and economic success. So if we are genuinely passionate about the retail industry, which we are, we should be campaigning relentlessly to tie those things together. So all the work that we're doing at the moment, really, I think is to make that shift. Again, I go keep going back to 1832, but there's an extraordinary document that sits in our head office, which is an article in the Times, that the standing of the, the founding members of the trust was, was so high in that sort of just pre-Victorian area that the Times sent a journalist down. And so we have a full page article of the sort of um, initial inaugural meeting that documents our why, going back to your Simon Sinek uh, story, documents our why. We didn't have to create that. It existed. And they speak about doing three things. They, they said they wanted an organization that campaigned relentlessly around the clear link between happy, healthy people and a thriving industry and a thriving industry and a thriving society. And we still believe in that. They, they then wanted to build out a coalition as big and as broad of influential leadership and brands and businesses that would, would give that, that, that mission credibility and momentum. They understood at that time that scale really mattered. If you wanted to make change, then you needed as many people on board as possible. And then thirdly, it wants an organization that empowered people. And so that's, that's, that's what we are. We, that, those are the three things that we do religiously now. We are constantly trying to prove the case between happy people and financial success through the data work that we're doing. And we've got a fantastic partnership with Microsoft and BGSS that are allowing us to really lean into their brilliant data science to try and create that link and prove it. 
Um, we are you know, looking for more and more people to come on board and say, look, this is something worthwhile getting behind. I am a firm believer that retail's DNA is, is all the better for the high levels of competition um, that exists within this sector. But there are certain things that the sector has to come together on to solve. And that, that in, in the instance of a happy, healthy, thriving retail workforce, when, one, when everyone wins, you know, everyone wins in, in that space. So we need to build out that coalition. So my call to action is just to get everyone to come and join us and, and get involved in this project. And then, and then finally, we, we continue to be about trying to empower people, give people access to the tools to make better decisions for themselves. There, is a, you know, there needs to be a clear distinction between what's the responsibility of an organization and what is the responsibility of the individual to take control of their health themselves. Um, but also, actually, we want to empower people leaders as well to make better decisions, create better people strategy so that we we reposition this sector back to where it belongs, which is as the premier people industry within within the UK. Uh, you know, it's the largest employer of people outside the NHS in the UK. It's the biggest employer of young people. Its potential to get the older workforce back into into the workforce is, is completely untapped. There is so much upside for for the UK in general, if we have a thriving retail industry, and I, and and my my vision, our vision collectively at the trust is that we we believe we've got such an important role to play in in doing just that. And what support do you need from outside influences to help the retail sector get back on its feet and 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 back into this strong, sustainable place that you're you're describing? I, I think that for us, government needs to listen. Um, I think Helen um, and the BRC do an absolutely fantastic job. I'm a, an enormous fan of her and the work that the BRC are doing. But clearly something needs to change around business rates. We've got to make it more affordable to actually run retail businesses because they, they are such great in, employers of people. There clearly needs to be changes to the planning laws so that we can make high streets more attractive again. Um, those, those, I guess, would, would be for be the big issues. We personally would love some support from government around helping us finance the work that we're doing into linking what great looks like in terms of culture and happiness and, and productivity, because the UK has such big productivity challenges. And, and again, I think the work that we're doing with Microsoft and BGSS can help solve some of those problems. So, you know, we, we'd love some support around, around that um, as well government needs to listen uh, collectively to the industry and what it what it needs if there are retail leaders or frankly any leaders listening to this podcast what's one thing you'd like them to go and do right after they've finished listening there's a there's a great um african proverb that says um if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together um if we are to solve the big people challenges that retail has at the moment that is a that is a long-term journey and a long-term challenge that so we have to go together. And there are lots of brilliant providers of, of health and well-being services out there, but I don't think there is one that can unite the industry like we can and, and create an, an impact that is greater than the sum of its parts than us. And so I just would encourage any organization that isn't currently working with us to reach out. Um, those that are a huge thank you already, but there's always more that could be done in terms of awareness within your, your workforce, uh, getting involved in fundraising, um, all of those sorts of things. But I, I think it's, it's buying into this idea that, that these challenges need to be solved together because actually when uh, the sector wins, every, every business will win in this space. Fantastic. 
And how can people find out more about the Retail Trust and the work you do? Visit our website, I think is the best starting point, www.retailtrust.org.uk. Come and have a look there. Um, but again, we are very visible at most industry events. Uh, I'm easily reachable on, on, on LinkedIn. Please do reach out. We'd, we'd love to talk to anyone who has a, an interest in the health of their people. Fantastic. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For the CEO of the Retail Trust, Chris Brooke Carter, it was learning through failure that helped him to become the humble and inspirational leader he is today. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.